I don't think nerdism should be exclusionary. You know, as long as you've got like a huge interest and really love boring people to death about it, then I think you're nerdy. (laughs) Hey, readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next? Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Readers, first we want to tell you about, and ask for your help with, a fun episode we have in the works. Way back in 2017, in episode 62, we asked for your recommendations for what I should read next, and you showed up in a big way. We realized lately that it's been a while since we switched the direction of the mic, so today I'm here to ask for your help in picking my own next read. In just a moment, I'll tell you about three books I love, one book I don't, and what I've been reading lately. Listen in, then leave us a voicemail at 502-627-0663 to share your recommendations for my TBR. Last time we did this, it resulted in so many amazing book suggestions, and I can't wait to be overwhelmed in the best way with your ideas. It's hard choosing favorites. Every week I ask a guest to tell me three books they love, and I feel kind of mean asking this question because it's so hard to answer. I'm reminding myself now, and I remind you, that this is three books I love, not my three tip-top favorites or the three very best books. I'm consciously choosing books I did not just talk about on the podcast or in my Best Books of the Year episode. And while I wanted to choose ones that are representative of what I love in my reading life, this can't represent everything I love. There's too much missing, too many themes, too many genres, too many specific authors. So with that being said, let's jump in. The first book I love is This Must Be the Place by Maggie O'Farrell. I have reread this at least half a dozen times, maybe more. At first for this episode, I thought I might go with all rereads, but no, we're not doing this. O'Farrell herself describes this as a novel about leaving and arriving and what it means to belong to a place or a person, but it's most especially a portrait of a marriage, the forces that bind it together and threaten to drive it apart. The marriage in this book is an unlikely but successful partnership between a floundering American professor and a British film star who hated the limelight so much she faked her own death and disappeared. These two found love and happiness together, but then an unexpected bit of news, 20 years old but newly discovered, threatens to unravel everything they built together. And we watch what happens. And we do that Reading a story told from many different viewpoints, many different characters, and all kinds of voices. These interlocking scenes sprawl and aren't told chronologically. They occur between 1944 and 2016. After I turned the last page the first time, I had to go back to the beginning and read it again to pay closer attention to the structure and how O'Farrell unfolded her story for the reader. It's brilliantly done. And seeing how she did it just keeps drawing me back. It is 
real hard to pick favorites, but I think Maggie O'Farrell may be mine, my favorite living author, at least. I've read all her works. I think she's consistently brilliant, particularly in her more recent works, beginning with This Must Be the Place. The books after that, which I think it's fair to say you're more likely to have already read, are Hamnet and The Marriage Portrait. But choosing This Must Be the Place as my particular favorite here, well, it was no contest. Something I learned about myself in reading The Marriage Portrait especially, which is a work I admire but didn't feel a deep connection to, is that emotional resonance is the hallmark of so many of the books I truly love. And that's what I feel in reading This Must Be the Place. My second pick is Silver Sparrow by Tiari Jones. I hesitate to pick this one as a favorite today only because I feel like I talk about it all the time. But you know what? That's fine today because I love it. Jones is Atlanta born and raised, and this novel, her third, is once again set there. It's about the link between two African-American half-sisters, one legitimate and one secret, one well-off, one not so much, only one of whom knows the other exists, and I bet you can guess which one. At least that is the case until the secret of their father's second marriage starts to force its way into the open. I love the way Jones unfolds this story for her reader. Rather than writing back and forth between the two perspectives of the two daughters, the reader encounters almost all of one sister's point of view in the first half, followed by the others. The result is an absorbing coming-of-age narrative wrapped in a complicated story of family secrets. Who carries them? What does it cost to do so? And why do they seem to want to make their way to the surface? This is sensitive and tender and gutting and interspersed with actual historical events drawn from Atlanta's history and sometimes the history of the broader South. And I really enjoyed that very concrete grounding in time and place. Finally, I thought about this a lot. I'm choosing Painting Time by Mylis de Carangal. I could have chosen any of her books. I love her so much. And I just discovered that she does have one work that has been translated into English from the original French that I haven't read yet. So perhaps I should read that next. Painting Time is the story of Paula, a young French woman who graduates from her secondary school and just has no idea what to do next, until, almost by accident, she stumbles into her calling and enrolls in an apprenticeship program to study trompe l'oeil, or the art of illusion, in Brussels. This was the first book I read by de Carangal. I feel like it was almost an accident that I stumbled upon it, and I was so struck by her style. It was unlike anything I'd ever read before— distinct, almost impressionistic. In this book, I feel like de Carangal invites us to come alongside Paula as she throws herself into her craft and learns to paint in such a way that she can flawlessly imitate rare and expensive materials with her brushstrokes, like marble, tortoiseshell, the heart grain of oak. As Paula finds work abroad as a decorative painter, in studios and on film sets in places like Paris and Moscow and Italy, she wrestles with the meaning of her work and what to do about the relationships her work has brought into her life. I just finished reading her, I believe, more recent work, The Cook, and I know I've talked about the heart, sometimes called Men the Living, on the podcast. I think the way she writes about people at work, specifically, is fascinating. It's distinctive, it's respectful, almost reverent, and... I'm constantly scanning to see if she has any new books on the way because I want to read them next. A book that hasn't worked for me. You know, I could give you broad categories of what hasn't worked for me lately, but I really wanted to share a specific book with you. I know it's a hard question to answer, and I feel like it would be a cop-out for me not to have one. So I finally landed on a book that many of you loved and adored. Some of our team members loved and adored. My husband loved and told me to read it. But he didn't have to tell me because it was on my TBR from the minute I found out that it was on the way. And that is, I'm kind of ducking, The Storyteller by Dave Grohl. I wanted to read it because years ago, I loved an episode of the Off-Camera Podcast with Sam Jones in which he interviewed Dave Grohl about his creative process. And I thought it was completely fascinating. I thought about those insights all the time. So when I found out he had a full-length memoir coming, I was so excited. I opted for the audiobook. I began it with high hopes and I will admit to being disappointed. I found the narrative to be meandering. I thought there were obvious gaps that were never addressed, and the prose just kept reaching for cliches that felt worn out. I didn't dislike this book, but it wasn't what I'd hoped for, and it lacked the qualities that I know I enjoy in memoirs from well-known artists and musicians. For example, a few I loved, Brandi Carlyle's Broken Horses, Viola Davis's Finding Me, even Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run, which I didn't expect to like, and I think about it all the time. I know we've talked about it on the show. 
The storyteller did deliver good moments. My son has synesthesia, so I was delighted by a wonderful little anecdote about how Grohl sees his song snap in a place like Lego bricks in his mind. He writes of buying a Joan Jet Barbie for his daughters in London, completely endearing story. And my favorite might be about the time Weird Al called the Saturday Night Live dressing room for permission to cover Smells Like Teen Spirit. But ultimately, this was not the glimpse into the mind of the musician that I had hoped for, and thus a reading experience I found wanting. Now, for what I've been reading lately, it's mostly been all kinds of books for our recent spring book preview and forthcoming summer reading guide. Those are making up the bulk of my reading right now. But I've also made time for other works because that is how I stay satisfied with my reading life. Lately, that has looked like Bring Up the Bodies, the second book in the Wolf Hall trilogy by Hilary Mantel, and Yinka, Where Is Your Husband by Lizzie Demolola Blackburn. So, readers, what should I read next? Call 502-627-0663 to leave a voicemail with your book recommendation. Tell us what you think I should read and why, and please share your name as well so we can thank you. Our team will listen to these voicemails, and we will share your recommendations in a special episode coming up in just a few short weeks. Again, to participate in this special episode, give us a call, leave a voicemail at 502-627-0663 to leave your voicemail, and please do so by February 24th. Now for today's guest, Karen Form, a self-professed nerd and hosiery designer who has worked on licensed products, including Marvel, DC, and Harry Potter. She's a dedicated board gamer and a fan of immersive science fiction, fantasy, and just generally loves fast-moving stories with big themes. We have a blast today talking about enthusiasm and passion-led adventures on and off the page. While Karen has a particular love for sci-fi and fantasy, our conversation today is full of entry points for readers of all genres. We talk about a bunch of titles that will appeal to fans of historical fiction, YA romance, crime drama, or any good story with high stakes. Listeners, you should know there's a brief mention of death by suicide in this episode. If that will be upsetting or triggering, take care of yourself. Skip ahead about three minutes in the audio when I begin my second book recommendation for Karen. This episode was recorded in 2019 as episode 193, Rolling the Dice on Your Next Read. And it's back today thanks to our Patreon community who helped us choose which guest favorite episode to air this week. Readers, something I love about this podcast and our readerly community is how it connects us, not just across the airwaves or on message boards, but in real life. After we recorded this episode in 2019, Karen and I actually got to meet in New York City not once but twice before the world shut down when I was in town for Don't Overthink It obligations, and we've continued to stay in touch. I reached out to Karen last week to check in and see how she's doing these days. I have a fun report back from her that will either serve as the catch-up you've been waiting for or a fun teaser for what we're going to touch on in today's episode. When I told Karen our Patreon community selected her episode, she said, OMG, that's so exciting. I am so honored. I'm going to go ahead and read you the rest of her email with permission. She says, as far as updates go, the pandemic did wonders for my reading life. I've been reading more books a year than I have since probably before college. Notably, I got into a lengthy Greek mythology phase inspired by playing a billion hours of the Hades video game. I also read through the whole Alice Oseman universe of books and comics, Heartstopper, and those, while stuck in London with COVID this past March. So that was fun. My husband kept going out to Waterstones to fetch me more books. I've also expanded my board gaming by moving online with Board Game Arena, which is great. We now can play with our friends that are spread all over the country. And as you've seen, I'm finally getting back to travel. We just got back from Portugal, home of amazing castles and tile work. I've attached a photo. Readers, you can see that in our show notes. You can see the new nerdy tattoo on my arm that I've gotten since we last spoke. Icons from Avatar, the last airbender cartoon. Otherwise, I'm still designing socks and slippers. Same old, same old. P.S. Every book you recommended to me was 100% spot on. And I just reread a certain trilogy last year. Readers, Karen names the trilogy, but I'm not going to give that part away just yet. She says, it's now one of my top fantasy reads and I recommend it to everyone. I hope that sets the right tone for today. Let's get to it. Karen, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I am super excited. We were so excited to get your submission, and our producer, Brenna, was the first one who saw it, and she said, Anne, I'm really excited about this one. I think you'd have a great conversation with Karen, but I have no idea how to summarize her reading life succinctly for you, so I thought you'd get a kick out of that. (laughs) It is kind of weird, I guess. (laughs) 
Well, tell us a little bit about yourself. I am a hosiery designer, so I design socks and slippers. I live in New York City in Queens with my husband and my cat. I'm a self-professed nerd of all sorts. I love sci-fi and fantasy. I play board games. I used to run a nerd bar trivia for almost 10 years until writing 40 questions a month got to be too much and we had to stop. (laughs) That's me in a nutshell. Karen, how does one become a hosiery designer? And does this have anything to do with the sock explosion that has happened in all the stores I like to patronize these days? Well, I became a hosiery designer through a really circuitous route. I actually went to school and majored in psychology. And it just so happened that my first job I got through a relative as an office assistant in a lingerie design company where I sort of learned the back end of fashion production and then kind of fudged my way into a design job doing kids' pajamas and men's boxer shorts and learned how to do graphic design on the computer and have just designed multiple categories of apparel for years. And now I'm on hosiery for the past, like, I don't know, since 2004. Not the usual route of going to fashion school (laughs) and then getting a job. What would I be surprised to know about your industry? The fashion industry is not glamorous like everybody sort of makes it out to be. It's not a bad job. I actually really love what I do. But you watch all these high fashion things where everybody's like, oh, I want to be a fashion designer and make my own line and do everything I want. But it's a lot of hard work. There's a lot of back-end design work. There's working with all the people in the middle, with buyers and your salespeople, and even just people above you on the chain, having their opinions thrown in the mix. And you're making designs for a particular customer. You're not necessarily designing for yourself. So understanding other other people and other people's shopping needs and likes and trend patterns is super duper important. It's not all high-end fun. Are you fashion designer by day and nerd by night? Or is there more seamlessness to, oh, how do you like that sewing pun to, <laughs> to what you do? For years, actually, up until this present job, I was actually mostly a licensed designer. So I would work with licensed products and I've designed for Marvel and DC and Harry Potter. How did you feel when those projects came through? It's super fun. The only issue with that is whenever you're in an office and everybody knows you're the nerd, everybody's like, well, go ask Karen if this is okay. No, maybe we should have Karen do it because, (laughs) you know, she really knows Star Wars much better than everybody else, which is all good and well. But my taste as a fan isn't necessarily the taste of, you know, Joe Smith in the middle of the country. We're two very different people. Now, Karen, you told us that there's actually a version of What Should I Read Next that we could play with you, but you would be the expert here. And that is What Board Game Should I Play Next? Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that interest and how that began. And I have to tell you that what I have in mind is we went to Scotland last winter with friends Mm -hmm. who love board games and they had ordered board games just for the trip. Will and I got to play all these new ones and I just, you don't know what you don't know. And I didn't know that there were board game groups and board game stores and board game nights and board game message boards. And tell us a little bit about that world and your place in it. I enjoyed board games as a kid, but, you know, sort of the board games we all played, Monopoly, Scrabble, etc. And then I sort of fell off for years. And being a nerd, I knew there was a board game thing happening, but just really wasn't paying attention. And then when my husband moved into my apartment before we were married... He brought with him his 20 board games and we just sort of started playing with the two of us and then with other friends. And I got super into it again because board games are a lot of fun. We now own around 300 board games, which is... Oh my gosh. It's ridiculous. And no, I don't have enough time to play all of them. (laughs) (laughs) When I hear readers on your podcast all the time, and I know you do it too, you're like, oh, I travel and I go to you know a bookstore wherever we're traveling. We do the same thing for Mm -hmm. board game stores, especially traveling overseas. We are Euro gamers, which it's a particular kind of game. I believe they originally started in Germany and they tend to be more like social, less confrontational type games with themes like building castles or making dresses or going on a trip in Edo era Japan and buying souvenirs. So whenever I actually have to go to Europe for work or when we travel ourselves, we just search for board game stores where sometimes you can play them and sometimes you can buy them and it's fantastic. (laughs) Are these difficult to find or are they abundant if you 
are actually looking for them. Nowadays, they're more abundant here. Even, I believe, Target carries a lot of the more popular ones, like Settlers of Catan or Ticket to Ride. And it's much easier now with the internet. I've ordered games from France when they're not available in the U.S. yet. The only thing is uh, some of them aren't the English language. So you have to do some research as to whether the cards or pieces involved are language dependent because you can usually download an English set of rules. But if you're looking at cards that have this paragraph's worth of description in German, it's not great because I only know a very few words in German, <laughs> like the word for game. <laughs> Did you realize that there would be an issue with the language until you maybe bought your first game in French? No, because we're utter researchy nerds and there's actually a website, uh, boardgamegeek.com, that like has every game in the world listed and it will tell you whether it's language dependent. Wait, I'm really interested. What did you play in Scotland? I mean, all these games I can picture, but I don't know. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so we played a lot of games that our friend read up about, I think on Board Game Geek and message boards and things like that, that I just, I didn't know this world existed. <laughs> but we played Pairs. We played a game called Where Words, almost like taboo-ish, where you're trying to guess a certain word. Okay. And we played a game that I found very complicated at first. It took me a while to catch on, where there were racing camels around the board. Oh, yep. You had to place bets about, what's it called? Camel Up. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, we played Camel Up. Also just small, like not board games, but also um, my friend who was actually on the podcast a long time ago, uh, Mel Jewel One. She had a word game that was made by the people who do Bananagram, but instead of the Scrabble-like Bananagram, I don't know, it's almost like Boggle back when I was in yeah, third yeah, grade yeah. where you roll out the cubes and the letters turn up a certain direction and you're supposed to form a like crosswordy looking grid of words, but you're supposed to use all the letters and whoever does it first wins. I love stuff like that. I thought it was super fun. You know, I love word games, but I either have like the worst luck in the world or I'm actually really bad at them. I feel, I don't know, every time I play Scrabble, I get immediately an entire like tile set of vowels, which is totally useless. <laughs> I'm fascinated by the people who play tournaments and know a hundred words that use a Q with no U, but oh yeah, uh, that is, that's not me. Absolutely not. <laughs> Though I have actually played Scrabble in this calendar year. Yeah. I have friends that play cooperative Scrabble where they together sort of put together words and just try to get the highest combined score they possibly can. Which goes back to the Eurogamer roots, cooperative, collaborative, that I didn't mm -hmm. know about. So a favorite of mine that, I mean, does it count as a board game? There's a board, there are pieces, but it's only two person and it's Othello. Yeah, yeah, that totally counts, 100%. I haven't played that in a year, but I do love it. <laughs> 40 questions a week for 10 years, huh? It was actually 44 because we had um, a question, which it was the last question in the round. It was like the super, super hard question that if you got it, <laughs> you not only you got like the point. And then we also made all these buttons with characters on it from nerd fandom that you could collect if your team got it right. And by the end of 10 years, we had people that were wearing necklaces of them. They had their backpacks covered. So it was kind of funny. The writing question portion, I am not sorry to see go, but we, I mean, we had people that were our friends that came, but we made friends with so many people through this game. People would show up because they heard about it and then they would keep coming back. And now I have a couple new friend groups that I never would have had beforehand. Oh, I love how common interests bring people together like that. It's wonderful. And actually the weirdest nerd trivia story, my husband and I were on vacation in Cinque Terre in Italy. We were on a tour, which by the way, I would not have known about it. Wait, hold on, hold on. This is one of those words that I, I've never been to Italy. I would love to go. I've only read about this in novels, Karen. Yeah. You, you pronounce it how? I think it's Cinque Terre. I called it Sancterre forever because I yeah, just me assumed too. it was okay. French. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I've, I've never had to say it out loud. No. It's, it's one of those bookworm problems is that suddenly you need to say a word that you previously only read in books and you realize, wait, I have actually no idea. I spent a long time as a kid thinking the name Penelope was Penelope. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just read a book with a Penelope. Yeah. Except when I read this in my head, I pronounced it Penelope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the book was set in, I'm just going to say Italy. Yeah, well, we went to Cinque Terre because I played a board game about it. So we're like, oh, let's go travel there. It seems nice. We were on a tour and we had like taken this two-hour bus ride and then they gave us food and we were outside the restaurant about to do the rest of the tour and I'm tying my shoe and these people walk up behind us and are like, are you Jim and Karen from True Nerd Trivia? And we're like, what? What? <laughs> and there were two people from <laughs> one of the teams that came that were on our tour in Italy. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Board games bring people together since. Yeah, across the world. Fascinating. Oh, that's so much fun. <laughs> 
Karen, I love how you've made your interest not just something you do by yourself, but something you do collectively. Will we see that in your reading life as well? I mean, I definitely share books, you know, pass stuff around that I like. I have certain friends that obviously have the same nerdy interests as me Mm -hmm. and the same reading interests because they're not necessarily the same thing. Mm -hmm. We do book discussions. I'm not really like a book club kind of person, but just more sort of individual discussions and whatnot. I don't know. I definitely brought it to trivia when I was doing it. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I feel like there's something we need to explicitly unpack. And Mm -hmm. that is that you've referred to yourself as a nerd a lot. And I am sure you know that in the what should I read next universe, that is a term said always with great affection. Oh, yes. But when you describe yourself as a nerd, what does that mean to you? Uh, It's such a weird question because nerd, I feel Because we can all be nerdy in our own way. Exactly. Because- I would definitely describe myself as nerdy, mm-hmm. but I couldn't list you the Star Wars movies in order to save my life right now. Yeah, I think nerd might actually mean anybody that's really excited about one subject or, you know, a particular interest. So you can be a book nerd, you can be a sci-fi nerd, you can be a Star Wars nerd, you can be, you know, a board game nerd, or a bunch of those together. I don't think nerdism should be exclusionary, you know, as long as you've got like a huge interest and really love boring people to death about it, then I think you're nerdy. (laughs) (laughs) Were you to bore people to death about a specific aspect of your reading life, where might you run into trouble of getting perhaps a little long-winded if your audience didn't share your interests? Definitely bored people to death about Terry Pratchett's Discworld, especially in trivia. I hear that you have a physical marker of your love for Pratchett. I do. I have a tattoo that I got the year that Terry Pratchett died. Oh. Yeah, that was my first tattoo. I was like, okay, I actually know that I want this permanently on my body and I'm not going to regret it. Mm-hmm. Is it in a place where people can ask you about it? It is. So it's on my left, the inside of my left wrist, which... It actually, I don't know, it's part of the description of the tattoo, which oh, when I'm asked casually by like a doctor or someone random, that's like, oh, what's that mean? Way too long to go, <laughs> go into description. <laughs> and I'm usually just like, oh, it's so what do you say? Author. I say um, um, it's in memoriam of my favorite author. Then they're usually just oh. like, okay, because it's small talk and they really didn't want to know more. Right. But actually it's the sign and we're going to get super nerdy here. It's a dwarven mine sign from the Discworld mythology. It's the summoning dark. And in the book Thud, it ends up on the inside left wrist, which is where mine is, of my favorite character, Sam Vimes. And basically dwarves will draw the sign to summon a demon, essentially, to take revenge on people that have wronged them. And it ends up in Samuel Vimes, who's a policeman, And what the demon does is sort of picks a champion, plays with their mind and tries to get them to take revenge in honor of like whatever has happened. And the interesting part about it is watching it play out in a character who has seen the worst of mankind and has overcome so many of his own demons that he sort of understands that push and urge and why it's wrong. It's, I don't know, it's always resonated with me because it's very easy for everybody to just be cruel. You know, something bad happens to you to blame others see people as other in times of like stress or wrongness, but the good in humankind is to overcome that urge. I've always loved that. And Terry Pratchett understands human nature like no one else I've ever read, like both the good and the bad of it. Now, when Terry Pratchett died and you thought, I'm going to get a Terry Pratchett tattoo, Mm -hmm. was there any competition or did you immediately know that it was this image from Thud? No, I 100% knew this. The moments from that book regarding this sort of struggle have just always had sort of deep emotional resonance for me. Well, that's really touching. Thanks. Karen, you said that was your first tattoo. Do you have other literary inspired tattoos? I've got one more and oh man, if you like want to go even nerdier <laughs> because it's a uh, it's a Tolkien inspired tattoo in the way that, you know, everybody knows Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Um, mine is inspired by The Silmarillion, which is the book that, <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings nerds think is too nerdy to read. I'm laughing because the first time I heard of that book, because I didn't read these growing up and I didn't know, I was in my early 20s and I remember one of my husband's co-workers was reading it and he was really apologetic about yeah. it. Will was like, oh, I love Lord of the Rings. Should I read this? And his nerdy co-worker was like, uh, no, this is definitely too nerdy for you. You know, my husband listened to it on audio and found it much more digestible that way because you have somebody with a nice soothing British accent essentially telling you a history story. Mm -hmm. So it's easier maybe to digest that way. You feel like you're in class (laughs) if you enjoy class. (laughs) (laughs) It clearly means something to you. 
Yeah, I I love it. It's in the beginning, sort of a creation story, and then goes into like oh, 20,000 years of elvish strife and history. But it's just really awesome world building. And there's a lot of striving through bad times that I just sort of resonate with. But yeah, on my arm, it's two stylized trees with some words between it. And the trees are the two trees of Valinor, which, you know, in the Lord of the Rings movies, when the elves are always like, oh, we're sailing into the West, that's Valinor which is essentially their paradise. Um, And these trees used to be what was the sun and the moon in ancient times until they were destroyed by Morgoth, who was the ultimate evil of the day. The elves have pretty much never gotten over that, like one of the worst things ever to happen in their history. In the middle of that is a quote in Elvish that says, Aure and Tuluva, which means day will come again. That is from a later period in the history, which is something shouted by Huron, who was hero of men, who shouted this while fighting off like a bajillion orcs so the rest of the company could get away. It was a hopeless fight. It's a reminder to me that, I don't know, especially nowadays when everything in the world seems kind of hopeless and everyone's really sort of disenchanted and upset that even if things are kind of garbage, you can't stop fighting for what's right or to help people because you always need to try to make a better world regardless of what's going on. I know it sounds super corny and it's doubly corny on top of talking about tattoos, but it's a message that I I always like in reading and any sort of media is people struggling to do the right thing and hopefully persevering. Did you design your tattoos yourself, Karen? Cherry Pratchett one is an exact copy of what's on the inside flap of the book. The tree one, I, you know, I found some reference online. I didn't draw it myself but I found something that was stylized like Tolkien and found the words. And I actually have a friend who's a tattoo artist who kind of helped me lay it out. So you enjoy reading about people struggling to do the right thing. Is that a theme that we're going to hear reflected in your favorites? I think so. Well, Karen, after hearing just a little about your love for Terry Pratchett, Tolkien, I'm so excited to hear more about your reading life. Are you ready to dive into your favorites? I am. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? (laughs) You get the goofiest game in history, Queen's Podcast. Hi, I'm Nathan. And I'm Katie. And we're the hosts of Queen's Podcast. Join us while we spill the tea on women from history. We get into all kinds of stories here, like biographies of lesser-known figures. For instance, Saida Haltura, powerful pirate queen. To the stories you might already know, like Marie Antoinette or Cleopatra, but with a fun twist. Each queen is paired with a cocktail that'll totally get you in the mood to hear fun, juicy, and dramatic stories from history. Because history is so much more than just dudes on a battlefield, and we believe that the female perspective and roles are just as deserving of their time in the spotlight. Right. So come get to know these queens. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher. And I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place, so we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now and can you guess the twist? You know how this works. You are going to tell me three books you love, one book you don't and what you're reading now and we will discuss what you should read next. Was it hard to choose these favourites? Oh God, yes. (laughs) Yeah. Everybody that comes on your show, I think, says, oh, I had a hard time. It's impossible. And it it is. I've been reading for 40 plus years. I'm a huge rereader. So a couple of these choices, I was like, okay, these are the ones I have reread the most, discounting Discworld. So we'll put them at the top. Okay. What did you choose for your first favorite? The Doomsday Book by Connie Willis. 
I guess it's speculative fiction, set not too far in the future. I think it was set in, I want to say like around 2050 or so, when time travel has been discovered, but it's really only used by historians to go back in time and study without really interfering with anything. And it centers around an Oxford University student. She is the first one being allowed to travel back to the Middle Ages because it had previously been rated way too dangerous for obvious reasons, not a really healthy time period. She gets sent back in time, but unfortunately, as soon as she arrives, she comes down with a virus and is so delirious, she's not sure you're supposed to establish where you are spatially, when you are time-wise, etc. And she was completely delirious and is unable to ascertain her surroundings, but is luckily taken in by a medieval family who cares for her and she comes to spend time with. At the same time, back in Oxford, the tech in charge of sending her there has also come down with a virus and is unable to ascertain where or when she is. So you have on either end of the spectrum, people trying to solve this mystery of what's happening while in the present, people are falling sometimes deathly ill with this virus. You're sort of putting clues together, trying to figure out when and where she is, which is great. And I really love it, not only because there's a link in the actual plot narrative that's going on, but Willis draws really good parallels between characters on both ends showing that humans are kind of humans no matter what end of the time spectrum you're on. There's always selfish people. There's always people, you know, willing to help other people out. There's always people willing to go above and beyond. And then there's also just kids living their fun, happy life on both ends no matter what's happening. I really love this because, as I said, I've reread things like a million times. Every time I read this and the more I go through life learning about different periods of history, the more clues I understand that she has put in this book to help you figure things out along the way. So it's sounds like this is a fast-moving story with really big themes. Definitely. How did you find your way to this book? I actually had a co-worker recommend it to me back, I want to say, around like 2000, 2001 or so. She was also a sci-fi reader and she was like, I think you're really going to like this book. And I did really like this book. <laughs> and I've also liked her. <laughs> They're not sequels necessarily, but she has a few others written in the same universe that are also great. And this is the standout for you? Yeah, because it was the first. And this one's like a mystery mm-hmm. drama. The one after this, To Say Nothing of the Dog, I also really enjoy. But that one's of a lighter fare. It's set uh, Victorian and it's more of like a farce slash mystery. So it's it's fun. I didn't know anything about Connie Willis as an author, but that is not what I expected based on the title. It's really good. And that one makes a lot of references to Agatha Christie and Dorothy Sayers, a lot of the mystery type books that I grew up loving. Karen, what's another book that you reread? I, I almost said constantly, but is that even fair? A kind of You're well, a huge rereader, but how often might you pick up a book that you come back to again and again? So most books that I really love, I'll tend to get to every year, every other year. They're my book hangover cure. When I'm like, I'm never going to read something as good as this again. It's like, oh, you know what? Let me just pick this up. I know I love this. We can like breeze through it pretty quickly and then I'll get in a better book mood. That is a proven method for many readers. And it's funny you should ask about that because my next one is Carry On by Rainbow Rowell, which I only read for the first time, I want to say two years ago. And I have reread it like six times, (laughs) which is sort of embarrassing. It's a YA novel. Yeah, I love it. I'm not familiar with Doomsday Book, but I have read Rainbow Rowell er, and Carry On specifically. Oh, fantastic. Wait, and doesn't she have another one coming out in this universe? Yes, in September. I'm so excited. (laughs) Okay, so six times in two years Mm -hmm. is intense. What is it about Carry On? It's sort of a Harry Potter analog and it's linked to her book Fangirl. Did you read that one too? I did. So yeah, it's about the two girls who write fan fiction. So this is sort of the fan fiction that came out of this book. It is set in what would be technically like a series of books, but this one is called Simon Snow and the dot, dot, dot. It's sort of a classic chosen one story, you know, chosen one who's supposed to fight ex evil, they're prophesied, blah, blah, blah. But it completely turns the whole chosen one concept on its head, which I really love because as a sci-fi and fantasy reader, there's so many of those. Basically, Simon Snow, his friend group, in his chosen group, his best friend, Penny Bunce, which, by the way, one of the only and best representations of a platonic male-female friendship, which I love. It's so rare that you ever actually get that. They've been going through trying to save the world the whole time and fighting against Simon's roommate slash nemesis, Baz Pitch. <laughs> I don't know. There's a whole interesting twist to all those dynamics, which I, I don't want to ruin it for anybody. The book is itself, it shows really fun relationships, 
takes what you're expecting and turns it on its head. What I really, really like is that it shows, I mean, I'm 45 years old, but I think it shows teens closer to what they really are. I feel that when adults write teens a lot of times, and this happens on TV and in books, they're either all super smart, like way smart and always making quips and just really super self-assured, or they're all making really obvious mistakes just to sort of move the plot along, which drives mm-hmm. me up a tree. <laughs> I can't stand it. It's not just you. Yeah. Um, Rainbow Rowell in this book and in other books, I think she remembers that teens are like simultaneously smarter and dumber than we remember being. They make mistakes because they're teenagers and they don't have the life experience and that's 100% expected. But they're also often more intelligent than adults in certain areas. And it was funny, my husband actually pointed out that he really liked that she remembered how gross teenage boys are, that like people are drinking out of milk cartons and <laughs> because that's, that's what happens. <laughs> it's also got a nice love story in it in a really good deserved way. And I also really like the magic system that she's created with all of the often used phrase have really high magical powers. So like clean as a whistle, we'll get something cleaned up off the floor, etc. I feel that the characters are super well-rounded, whether they're good characters or evil characters. Nobody is just that. They're all well-rounded. You can understand bad guys' motivations. You can understand good guys' motivations. And bad people mm-hmm. do good things sometimes and good people do bad things sometimes. Okay. And you like that complexity. Yes, absolutely. What did you choose to round out your favorites? My final one is Cryptonomicon by Neil Stevenson. Uh, it's a speculative fiction book. It's pretty much historical fiction with just some slight elements of uh, technologically advanced things, though it was 1999 when this book came out. So some of these slightly uh-huh. advanced things have come to fruition since then, which is pretty funny. The story is a switching point of views between World War II and current day. In World War II, you have one character who is a cryptanalyst who is working on breaking the in Germany's Enigma code. Also back in World War II, there is a U.S. Marine who, while they're breaking all these German codes, they have to make sure that the Germans don't realize they've broken their codes. So there's this Marine who's part of a detachment that goes out and sort of fakes up things so the Germans don't realize what's happening, pretends they've spotted a convoy or leaves clues to think that, oh no, the code hasn't been broken. You know, someone actually saw that happening, etc. And on the other end, you have the modern day grandson of the code breaker who has discovered links to Nazi gold and sort of an unbroken code from his grandfather's days. Really super interesting. It's Neil Stevenson, so it's highly intricate and has a lot of math stuff in the middle of it. And I've recommended this to a lot of people. And there's certain things in there that if the first time through the parts where he's diagramming math things, you can skim through it. It's cool. It won't like ruin your experience of the book. So if you wanted to nerd out about that, you totally can, but it's not essential to get the story. It really isn't. Okay. That's going to be really empowering to a lot of readers. I gave it to my mom to read because to expose more nerdiness in my family, my parents are World War II and Civil War reenactors. <laughs> so I was like, mom, you have to read this. It's World War II. She was like, well, it's got these things. I'm like, no, no, just breeze through that, read the rest of it. And she loved it. Like she thought it was really great. I know people always describe writing as, you know, oh, it's got beautiful prose to it, which is not usually my jam, but he does something similar, which I don't know, in my brain, I think of it as textural prose. You know, when you eat a dessert in a restaurant and like, it's really creamy, but they've added some crunchy bits to it because it sort of will bring out the creaminess and the juxtaposition of those mm, two I love textures. the crunchy bits. Yeah. yeah. I feel his writings like that. There'll be like super intricate, weird math stuff, but then he'll go off on a tangent about eating Captain Crunch cereal in the perfect temperature milk or it gets too mushy. And it's so true. Yeah, right? <laughs> I mean, I haven't eaten that since I was seven years old and I still know it's so true. 100%. He actually goes off and on a whole thing in Cryptonomicon describing the main modern day character through a Tolkien lens is saying like, oh, Randy is a Tolkien dwarf. He's hardworking and does this and that. And he talks about him being stuck at a dinner party with his girlfriend and her like pompous academia friends and says that, oh, Randy is a dwarf and he's stuck at a table with a bunch of hobbits complaining about stuff, which just immediately solidified exactly who these people were in my mind. I love the way you describe it. And I also love that it sounds like readers who maybe wouldn't naturally have picked this up, like your mother also really enjoyed the story. That's telling. 
it's actually a decent gateway book. I also have a friend at work who was like, I don't really like sci-fi. And I'm like, well, there's lots of different kinds of sci-fi. I know you Mm -hmm. like this kind of story, so try this. And she also liked it. I'm glad that she had a reader like you in her life who could help her see that it's not all what maybe the stereotypes have led her to believe. Mm -hmm. Karen, you had a difficult time choosing your favorites. Was it as challenging to identify the book that was not right for you? Oh, no. No, no, no. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me about it. (sighs) And I'll probably make some nerds mad about this. But um, it just wouldn't be fun if we all agreed. That's why there's, there's so many things. We all have our own opinions and likes and stuff. I really, really disliked The Name of the Wind and also Wise Man's Fear by Patrick Rothfuss because so many people told me that it was good. I read the second book hoping it would get better. <laughs> yeah. Uh, these books made me It's so been mad. a favorite on this podcast. Yeah. And I, you know what? I have friends that love it. And honestly, I will never knock anybody for liking something I don't enjoy because what? We're not the same person. No, no, no. My biggest gripe with this is that the main character is a Mary Sue and that kind of character drives me up a tree. I don't know if you know what a Mary Sue is. Basically a character that can do nothing wrong. Like they are perfect at every single thing. Oh, no, I didn't know that, but I I love that now. Yeah. I think it started with fan fiction maybe, but I'm not sure. He is the best at every single thing he does. He's like, oh, I play the lute better than everybody. Oh, I'm going to magic school. I am immediately better than every one of my teachers. And I am like 14 years old, but I speak with the eloquence of a 45-year-old duke. And I am outsmarting every single person around me. There's no like tempering of what's happening. I mean, first of all, the bragginess of it is really obnoxious. (laughs) Also just people aren't, aren't like that. There's nobody that's perfect. There's nobody that's all good or all evil. It doesn't make any sense. Also, I found these books so sexist. Every female character seems to be there for him to have sex with or to mansplain how to do something better. And the main quote unquote romance seems so emotionally abusive and is touted to be romantic. And that's just something that drives me up a tree. I read them so a few years ago, so I don't remember all the ins and outs, Mm -hmm. but that sort Mm -hmm. of overshadowed any of the world building. Because I I seem to remember there were some interesting things in there, but it would just, I would read some stuff and then be like, just kind of ruined it. Karen, what are you reading right now? I recently finished the Broken Earth trilogy, which I got from your recommendation on a recent episode. I think the post-apocalyptic one. I read all three books in a week. Oh, wow. They're not short. No, they're not. I just couldn't stop reading them. It's my favorite, I think, epic style sci-fi since Dune, which is actually very similar. The planet in both of those is a character, which is just great. It was such a good story. I think when you described it, what I really liked was you were talking about how there's all this history, like history upon history upon history of the world, and that you needed a glossary, which actually was like a high point for me. I'm like, ooh, I definitely have to get this. (laughs) (laughs) But I like that you're sort of thrown into this world and are slowly piecing together both what's happened in recent history and then 25,000 years ago. It's got a wonderful main character, very representational of all types of people. And I just, I don't know, can't say enough good things about that book. And I actually also saw N.K. Jemisin a week or two after I read it at BookCon. I saw her speak. Yeah. What amazing timing. Right? Well, I mean, jealous, first of all, but what amazing timing. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't get to meet her, but she was on a panel and they were talking about how they came up with ideas for their books. And she said she had had a dream about an angry young woman floating a mountain behind her. And she had to know what that was all about. Oh, that is fascinating. Is that one you'll be rereading? 100%. I love the zero hesitation. Um, And then I also recently read Strange Weather in Tokyo because it was recommended so many times Um, And I was actually in Tokyo on a train between Tokyo and Kyoto and needed a quick book to read. And I was like, oh, well, now's the time. That was kind of perfect for that time and that place. Well, that's very different from the other books we've talked about today. Yeah. And I don't know if I could have read that in a different time and place, but I liked being immersed in the place I was reading something set in the place I was because I'll get inspiration from reading books anyway for traveling, which, oh, I forgot to mention because of Cryptonomicon, I actually traveled to Bletchley Park in England and then got to see where Alan Turing's desk was and where they broke all the codes. Um, and the same thing with like Cinque Terre is going there from playing a board game. I do the same thing with books. I get excited about something and I want to read, see, and do everything involving that. It was fun to read about someone snacking on Japanese food and Japanese restaurants while having done it myself. Oh, I'm sure. When you say you like your books to be immersive, you mean it. Absolutely. 
Hi, everyone. It's Jean Chatsky, host of the Her Money podcast. For seven years, my show has been changing the relationships women have with money because make no mistake, when it comes to money, women are different. We face challenges that men don't. Longer lifespans, caregiving, a gender pay gap that just won't quit. Oh, and the fact that the financial industry was built by men for men. We need information specifically for us presented without jargon in a judgment-free zone. And that's what the Her Money podcast is all about. Every week, we talk about earning more, spending smart, investing to build the life you want, and protecting yourself from disaster. Subscribe to Her Money with Gene Chatsky wherever you get your podcasts. Because when you own your money... You own your life. At a time when change is constant and we are pulled in far too many directions, we need a way to stay present to life and to increase our ability to remain calm, think clearly, and maintain our well-being. Many studies indicate mindfulness improves our mental, emotional, and physical health. On a Mindful Moment with Teresa McKee, You can learn how to practice mindfulness and enjoy its many benefits. Tune in for guided meditations and to hear tips and advice from some of the most respected experts in the fields of mental health and mindfulness. The world truly can be a better place. It all starts with a mindful moment. I'm really excited to talk about what you may enjoy reading next. Ooh, me too. Because we definitely have consistent themes here. And I've noticed you haven't talked about the writing style much at all. Like you mm-hmm. want it to serve the story and you like it when it's good, but you do not want the writer to call attention to, look how pretty my writing is. No. Or isn't this especially poetic? Like just stay in your lane, dude. That's what I hear you saying. Yeah, <laughs> yeah pretty much exactly. <laughs> so and while you do especially love sci-fi, there's lots of different ways that's expressed. Like we have a YA novel. We have some books that are really plot-driven. We have some that are more character-driven. They move at different paces. Um, they're different lengths, but they all go into great depth to really sink you into the world and really show you the characters. Absolutely. And I am not, I'll read anything. If you hook me with the characters, I don't care if it's horror or sci-fi or just literary fiction. I'm all in. All right, Karen, the first book I'm thinking of is one that really does interesting themes with the chosen one trope, and that is The City of Brass by S.A. Chakraborty. Is this a book you know? No. I really do not want to give too much away, but I will say that the author, who I think writes this from a perspective that I think you would really appreciate, Mm -hmm. what was important for her to know, what she wanted the reader to take away, and how she wanted it to feel timeless- and I'll explain that more in a second. I, I think these are all promising things for you. It sounds good. She sets you up to believe that something is happening. And you're not wrong exactly to think so. And I don't think that you will feel tricked because I hate feeling tricked as a reader. And I know that I am not alone in that mm-hmm. at all. She's doing something perhaps more interesting and less obvious and common than the reader may at first think. This is a new book. It's just come out in the past couple years. It's lengthy enough. It'll give you the kind of hefty story that Strange Weather in Tokyo aside that you seem to gravitate towards reading. It's a little over 500 pages. This is actually the first book of a promised trilogy. So if you do love it, you will have more stories to look forward to. I like it. This is a fantasy. It's got really excellent world building. You've said that word a couple of times, and I know you care about that. And it features an 18-year-old. Her name is Nari. She makes her living as a con artist, and she's saving up for something important to her. So I think you will appreciate the themes here, like what you said about some of the books you really enjoy is characters are complex, and you see good people doing bad things and bad people doing good things, and that is certainly true of Nari. So she has no family. She has to make her own living, and she does it as a con artist. But one job goes horribly awry, and she accidentally conjures a mischievous and also handsome Dijin that completely wrecks her life and ends up transporting her to the magical city of brass. It's a city from Middle Eastern folklore. The brass walls are impervious. They mean a lot to the city and a lot to the plot itself. What happens next is fun 
and fascinating. And she's such a great, strong female protagonist. She's independent. She's feisty. She's on a hunt to figure out what is going on and what her role in it is. And again, I really like what this book does with the chosen one theme. Chakraborty is Muslim. And it was really important to her that she use symbols from Islam and she do it faithfully. And the way she does that in this book, it's not a coincidence that she sets it in the early 18th century. And I highly recommend looking at her interviews and reading her author's notes that explain these things. Something that works really well in this book because of the way that she's definitely situated it in history and symbolism that has existed for centuries, if not millennia, is that you can read it and feel like it's representing certain eras that you are familiar with. It's like you can, um, she said that she's had readers read it and say like, oh, this sounds exactly like Israel and Palestine. Or, oh, it sounds like the Persians and Arabs a thousand years ago. Or, oh, is this about Iraq and the United States? And I think the way readers react to that speaks to the way that she portrays universal human themes and struggles that have been constant over time. I think seeing that portrayed in this high fantasy setting could be really satisfying to you as a reader. This sounds amazing. Um, I really like what you said about, again, the chosen one story being subverted, but not being tricked because I love when something is not what you thought it was and suddenly like, you know, the world shifts and pieces become clear and you're like, whoa, but not that like M. Night Shyamalan thing at the end, like, oh no, it was really this the whole time where it's it's not paid off at the end. I do like to have my mind blown sometimes. Yes. Every once in a while. I mean, it has to make sense, you yes. know, to have the feeling be, oh, of course, and not how dare you, author. Exactly. Exactly. I also love the idea of her being a con artist because I love a good heist. So <laughs> that also works really well along with all the fantasy and sci-fi. Stevenson is no stranger to a good conspiracy. So, you know, we, we could see that in your history. Yeah. <laughs> Karen, how do you feel about a left turn towards a really popular contemporary sci-fi thriller? Sure. I feel like maybe you'd be seeing this everywhere and you don't need me to point it out to you, but I can't not mention the new time travel novel, Recursion by Blake Crouch. Do you know it? No, I don't. I'm so excited though. I love time travel. We can see that in the Doomsday book and I'm glad that's not a coincidence. I like this because it's time travel and the time travel isn't gratuitous or hey, maybe people would buy a time travel novel, but it's essential to this story. And also something you see in this time travel novel is you talked about Terry Pratchett and how you see in some of his work a call to be your better self. And something we have in this book is people struggling to be their best selves, and also to make sacrifices of what they really want for the sake of humanity. This was a brain bender. I had to read some pages like three times to be like, is what I think is happening, happening? Because as the characters travel back in time, they keep rewriting history and it changes things. In the opening pages, there's an NYPD detective and he's been summoned to a top floor of a Manhattan high rise because there's a woman on the ledge who's threatening to jump. And she says, don't come near me. You can't save me. I have false memory syndrome. Life is not worth living. I'm going down. You do not need to come with me. And I don't want you to catch it because it's believed that false memory syndrome is contagious. And she tells him that the reason she can't go on is because she woke up one day, I think the week before, and all of a sudden she has all these memories. They're not normal memories though. It's like she's seeing them in black and white. She calls them shadow memories. But she remembers this whole past life she had, her husband, and they had a wonderful marriage, and she was in a different profession than she is now. And she had a son. And it's the images of the sun that really kill her. And she thinks, that could have been my life, but here's what I'm stuck doing now. And it is not okay. And she tells the detective specifically, this is the man I was married to. This was the situation. So after she jumps, not a spoiler, it happened on like page six. <laughs> he looks him up in the phone book and goes to visit him out in his house on Long Island. And the guy is uh, protesting at first. I don't know what you're talking about. That's ridiculous. How on earth could someone have like false memories? You've got to be kidding. Leave now. But he has second thoughts and says, okay, detective, false memory syndrome 
is not what you think and gives him an address for a shady hotel where Detective Barry gets strapped into this chair a gutsy female scientist has been working on in an ocean in the middle of nowhere for a philanthropist slash scientist who might have questionable motives and starts to find out what is going on, how it's originally intended for good, but how it's much more likely that it's going to destroy humanity. Wrapping my head around what was happening when you start messing with space and time in this novel, it was a doozy, but it was lots of fun. So this is a high stakes novel. You've got a procedural because you've got a detective on the case. You've got a save the world thriller. You have a love story, which really took me by surprise, but lots of readers have really enjoyed, not least because it's so unexpected. Time travel thriller. How does that sound? This sounds so, so good. Uh, the minute you said that you had to keep going back and forth to a page being like, wait, what? That got me. <laughs> I always feel that's like a good novel if I'm like, Wait a second, did I read that right? I love procedurals as well. And New York, three wins. Check, check, check. Okay, because I've seen that you really enjoy books that are creative and inventive with their plots Mm -hmm. and that also put a twist on something you feel like you know and show it to you in a whole new way. Mm -hmm. The book I'm thinking of was first introduced to me by a reader who said, you know, this isn't the kind of book I usually pick up. Read it. I know you'll love it. And that is a YA fantasy fairy tale retelling, which, I mean, those have some built-in strengths and also kind of weaknesses. Mm-hmm. It's Bridget Hammerer's A Curse So Dark and Lonely. I'd love a good retelling of a fairy tale. Well, this one is Beauty and the Beast. Kemmerer has said that she is kind of obsessed with. <laughs> like it was her favorite. She watched the Disney version over and over and over. But of course, this isn't your ordinary Beauty and the Beast. She has a modern-day 17-year-old girl. Her name's in Harper. She's in D.C., and life is not going well. Her mom is dying of cancer. Her dad's long gone. Her brother's in trouble. And so she's on the streets of D.C. when something happens to transport her to the woods of Emberfall, which is a fairy tale world ruled by a prince. Who is the beast we would know from Beauty and the Beast? And this poor guy, who is not sympathetic in many ways, but in others he is, because he has been cursed by the evil empress to live this year of his life over and over and over again. And he's done it 300-something times, I think. At the end of every autumn, he turns into a monster, he eats everyone in sight, and he has to begin again at the beginning. And the only way out is to fall in love. So. Of course, we know this is how the story goes, but the way that Kemmerer imagines the story is really interesting. So she comes in, she meets the prince who's reliving the fall of his 18th birthday 300 times now. It always ends badly. And there is definitely some dark stuff here. I mean, there's stabbing, you know, people being eaten. The empress, she's a scary lady. But the 17-year-old girl, her name is Harper. She's funny and snarky and she's kind and courageous. Oh, also worth mentioning is that she has cerebral palsy. And what that looks like for her is she has a limp. And something that I really like about the way Kemmerer handled this in the story is she does have a character with a disability. It's important in the story, but it's not the main point of the story, even though it's very much part of her identity because people underestimate her because of this. Harper is vulnerable, but also really strong, very relatable. There's also a little bit of a love triangle element that readers are very split on. (laughs) There's a sequel coming in early 2020. So if you're like, ah, what's going to happen next? You will not have to wait long. How does that sound to you? That sounds like a lot of fun. I really, really like fairy tale retellings. Like I love Marissa Meyer, Cinder series. Oh, yes. Oh, and my kids just blew through her newer series that starts with Renegades. Yeah, I just read those too. I feel like a lot of readers have a Cinder-shaped hole in their hearts and they're just trying to fill it up. Mm -hmm. And it sounds different to what has been done before. So- I'm kind of excited about that. Well, one of the potential challenges with fairy tale retellings is it's very easy for them to veer into melodramatic territory. Yep. But I think Kemmerer treads lightly and handles this really well. Awesome. Okay, Karen, here's what we talked about today. The City of Brass by S.A. Chakraborty, Recursion by Blake Crouch, and A Curse So Dark and Lonely by Bridget Kemmerer, which isn't that a great name for a Beauty and the Beast retelling? It really is. I mean, come on. <laughs> of those three books, what do you think you'll read next? Maybe I'll start with recursion 
because I don't know, there's something about it being set in my home city that right now is speaking to me, but they all sound really good. And I'm also a multi-book reader, so I might be reading them at the same time. And I hope you really enjoy it. Thanks so much for talking books with me today. Oh my God, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. Hey readers, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Karen and I'd love to hear what titles you'd add to her TBR. Find Karen on Instagram at kform27 and see the full list of titles we discussed at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com. Don't forget to call in and leave your suggestions for what I should read next, and maybe you'll hear them on a future episode. That phone number is 502-627-0663. And please remember to share your name, first name is just fine, what book you think I should read next, and why you think it might be right for me. Connect with us on Instagram for more bookish fun. I'm there at Ann Bogle. That's Ann with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. And you'll find the show at What Should I Read Next? We love seeing your bookish comments, posts, and shares. So come on over and join our social community. Subscribe for weekly updates on the show and see what I've been reading lately at What Should I Read Next? Podcast.com slash newsletter. Thanks to the people who make the show happen. What Should I Read Next is created each week by Will Bogle, Holly Wukachevsky, and Studio D Podcast Productions. Thanks also to our community manager, Sara Ader. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. As Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. Happy reading, everyone.